Uh, welcome to the Peace Coalition podcast, everybody. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Thomas Coleman. And on the show today, we have uh, Marvin Heyman, uh, Chief of Staff of the Metropolitan uh, Police Department. Uh, we'd love if you want to you know, introduce yourself a little bit more, talk about yourself, what you do. Absolutely. And, and uh, good morning to everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, with you, Thomas, thank you so much for, for having me on. Uh, Marvin Heyman, I'm Chief of Staff of the Metropolitan Police Department here in Washington, D.C., here in our nation's capital. Uh, our department uh, has just over 3,500 sworn officers, additional about uh, 650 uh, professional staff members or civilian staff members uh, with the agency. We're one of the largest police departments here in the country. I've been with the agency in a variety of capacities over the last 13 years. Uh, majority of my time either focusing on personnel services, so recruiting, training, uh, and, and kind of those pieces, or the technology side of the agency. Pleasure Thank to be you. here with you. I'm so happy that you are here. This is great. Um, so um, let's just start, you know, in general, um, understand a little bit more about your role um, as Chief of Staff. What are some of your day-to-day responsibilities? Well, there is no usual day. <laughs> You know, uh, my, my, my role uh, in this is really supporting the chief of police and the direction for the agency, ensuring kind of those broad agency priorities are, are not only uh, thought out for, you know, a five-year, 10-year out plan, but also the, the immediate practicality is how, how do we achieve our immediate goals are met. And so, you know, I think of it almost as a traffic control uh, role, right? You know, and so every day, you know, as priorities are shifting, as there's crime that's happening in the community, as we're, you know, engaging in various spaces and places, you know, I'm helping to make sure that we get the right people in the right room to have the conversations and move the ball forward. Obviously, the last, you know, two years have been a really challenging time in law enforcement, uh, you know, with, with a lot of expectations, and rightfully so, uh, that, uh, you know, th this profession continues to evolve and change. And so you know, I've been on the forefront of, of, of working with our uh, department in a variety of capacities and, and helping uh, to make some of those progress and changes in a variety of different spaces. And so, you know, on an average day, uh, my days are long. Uh, I would say that they're rarely under 16 hours, uh, but, you know, in those days, they go, you know, from the mundane of, you know, reviewing paperwork to, you know, supporting uh, some of our field activities. If we have you know, for example, you know, a, a homicide in the field, it might be, you know, uh, helping to make sure that, that, you know, all the information is prepared. So when we're talking to the community about it, uh, we've con con collected the relevant information, uh, you know, our, our public information office team is sharing the information to the community, we're putting out messaging and so forth. And so the, the role really spans the gamut of, of responsibilities. I think what I enjoy most uh, about it is making sure that that we have the best and most uh, well-trained workforce. And so a lot of my time and energy is, you know, really still spent in those personnel service areas, so making sure that we put the right people in the right position, making sure that we're hiring the right officers for the department, making sure that we're thinking differently and more strategically as we move forward about, you know, how we can do things better. For example, you know, as we're talking about hiring here in the nation's capital, we put increased emphasis on hiring our cadets. And our cadets are 17 to 24 year old young folks from the District of Columbia 
uh, that uh, become police officers. That it, it's it's a very valuable thing. But you know, I, I lead a group every single week where we meet and talk about ways uh, to kind of push that uh, hiring agenda forward. Obviously, if we can hire our police officers from the community who you know born and raised and have deep roots and connections to the city, the majority of our cadets are female officers. Uh, you know, and so all of these are very beneficial things. But you know, in that space and place, I'm thinking. You know, how do we grow and change this organization to be the, you know, the, the police department we want in 2025 and 2030 and so forth? Wow, okay. Um, thank you for that, because I was definitely focused on talking about recruiting and just how you go about that. I definitely want to talk about that later. Um, interesting that you said the majority of your cadets are uh, women. I did not know that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, in, in law enforcement nationally, only about 11% of police officers are women. Uh, in DC, we have a much better story, uh, but it's still not the story I'd like to lead with. We have about 23% of our police officers here in DC in, at MPD are, are female. Obviously that's not representative of the population we serve. We're very um, you know, representative in many other areas, but when it comes to gender, uh, we can do better. Our department's made a commitment, uh, and 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 you know, part of the national movement of twenty by thirty, uh, 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 thirty by thirty. My apologies. And thirty by thirty is thirty percent female officers being hired into recruit classes by twenty thirty. We're trying to take it to the next level and say thirty percent of our workforce would be women by twenty thirty, uh, which which I think we're going to achieve in our cadet program. Uh, it fluctuates depending on the month and who's turning over and who's being hired. But generally, we've been sitting at 50% or a little bit higher of female officers uh, in the cadet program. Uh, it's a great opportunity because not only do they come in, they get their college credits uh, uh, you know, in order to become a police officer, but also you know, they're able to give back to their city. And you know, we pay for the education, we pay for salaries they're going through. We've even started a part-time program for, for young folks in high school uh, for during their senior year set almost $17 an hour, you know, as soon as they graduate, then they have a full-time position with all the benefits that come with that. But, you know, for the agency, it allows people to come in that might not have considered law enforcement as a path, right? And, and I think as we're thinking about law enforcement, there's all sorts of barriers, uh, you know, perception barriers, a lot of times for what policing is and what policing is not. Uh, and I think that's a very useful uh, program to allow people to come in to learn about the agency, to learn about what law enforcement is and who we're really trying to have in this profession, allow us to get to know them to make sure that they're the right fit. And then ultimately, you know, to diversify our workforce here in the city. Uh, about 97% of our cadets are individuals of minority background. Uh, and, you know, so it's just a fantastically diverse program uh, that really is representative of the city that we live in. Wow. I am learning. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so next question. Um, I also saw that you were executive director of the Professional Development Bureau. Um, could you explain a little bit of the purpose of that department for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Our Professional Development Bureau uh, is uh, essentially a combination of all of our uh, cradle to grave uh, personnel services. So from recruiting to training, our medical services division to uh, that deals with employees kind of medical care while they're on uh, to our testing and promotional processes, our discipline process. So any officer who's you know sustained for any sort of misconduct, a review of that and, and kind of a, 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 
a fair and equitable look at what discipline is appropriate in those situations to ensure that bad officers are removed and officers that can be rehabilitated are rehabilitated. Uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, really that bureau looks in, in HR as well. So everything from the time someone considers joining to the time they separate, whether voluntary or otherwise, uh, uh, is, is in that. I, I had the privilege of serving as executive director in that function for about three and a half years. And in my current role, I oversee the work product coming out of that bureau still. Um, interesting, you guys are talking about disciplinary action. Um, what are, I know it's probably case by case, but like, what are like some of the first steps in, in disciplinary action? Well, you know, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the public, and often when I when I talk about this, um, might not realize the 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 scope and the impact uh, of a chain of command organization in terms of discipline. Majority of our discipline cases are very minor. Uh, you know, tardiness to work, uh, uniform uh, might be missing a piece of equipment. Uh, you know, it, it can be a variety of, uh, you know, they missed a training, uh, you know, very minor type pieces. That's the vast majority of what comes through our disciplinary process. Uh, where my focus and attention always is and would remain in that area are most serious cases. Are officers uh, who are alleged to have committed misconduct uh, or, and, and, and essentially when an allegation comes in and, and I could spend, you know, two hours trying to describe you know, all of the nuances up here, but at a very high level, you know, when complaints come into the department, they can be investigated through a variety of different ways to include the independent office of police complaints. Ultimately, when an investigation sustains misconduct, it would come over to the Professional Development Bureau uh, in the more serious cases. And in those cases, the Professional Development Bureau, our disciplinary review division that's led by a civilian, not police officer, uh, who's an attorney, uh, who would review those, uh, uh, you know, actions and say, you know, based on our table of penalties, based on the past actions, what is an appropriate penalty? Now, there's a whole process through collective bargaining where you know, the member has the right to express, you know, their opinion and their position. And then there's a series of reviews, just like uh, you'd expect in a legal uh, proceeding for the member to have their side heard as well. And ultimately, the most serious cases will go up to the chief of police uh, for a decision. You know, the cases that, 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 you know, I'm laser focused on are the ones that lose the public trust. So an officer who, you know, uh, uh, treats a member of the community poorly uh, to an officer who uh, gets arrested. And unfortunately, police officers are just members uh, of the public that, yes, they have a higher expectation. They have all these different pieces into it. But ultimately, you know, they're, they're people, too. And so, you know, every once in a while, you know, we'll see an officer who gets uh, uh, driving under the influence charge, just like, you know, we'll see in the community. And of course, you know, the appropriate actions have to come with that. And so, you know, for the community to have trust in the police department, uh, I think ensuring that, that they know and have reassurance that, that, you know, these actions, when allegations against police, they're investigated thoroughly. Uh, I don't think if you talk to any of our officers, they'll say we're very lighthearted in terms of our discipline. You know, it, it is, it, you know, suspensions, those are real paychecks uh, that, that people lose. Terminations, those are families that get up for it. And, and, and if the actions warrant that, um, then, then, you know, we're, those are the actions we'll take. We're not afraid of uh, having to separate an officer. Now, we could spend hours talking about the challenges of independent arbitration and officers getting their jobs back and all of that. But, but I know that's not really the purpose of why we're here today. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, uh, from a discipline standpoint, 
we're very mindful that we have to maintain the public trust. And one way of doing that is ensuring that, that, that if something does happen, uh, that we're holding our officers accountable. And I will say, you know, out of our workforce, and we have a very large workforce, the number of actions that actually rise to that level every single year compared to the number of actions that we have every single day with communities, it, it's, it's, you know, it's minuscule. Do you know what that number is? Uh, in terms of the comparative, I know mm. the, the total number of cases that fluctuates. Actually, that information is public. It's on our website. Uh, we po post all of our adverse action cases where any member of the public could go in. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's a long file and it describes just a high level synopsis of the action. Uh, but it fluctuates, um, you know, uh, every single year, depending on what happened that year. Um, you know, but uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a pretty low number. I can follow up with you after to give you the specifics year by year. Uh, but I'd rather not give you the, uh, the number and be off by five or 10. <laughs> Thank you. Um, also, I guess one thing I did notice that a part of the police talk about the police academy division. Um, and so it actually makes me kind of wonder and guide our way to like actual police officers training um, in that process. Um, is there, because I, I, I noticed that you actually said that you're trying to actively um, like lower the amount of time that it takes for the, um, like the structuring of the sworn in process. Is, isn't that correct? Of the recruiting process. Recruiting process. Like the hiring process and then also make sure the quality of officers. Um, how do you, how did you do that? Like, what, what would you know about yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, and I've worked with police departments all around the country in terms of their hiring process. And I've had, I've had the, the, the privilege and fortune of traveling a lot of the country to see how other agencies do it, to see how we've done it, uh, and to really kind of look at better practices and best practices. Um, you know, when I first looked at our hiring process back in 2009, uh, it was a very inefficient process. Uh, it was a process that an individual applicant had to deal with at least 35 different staff members or staff roles in order to go through the hiring process. And so we literally laid out, uh, if you can imagine, a timeline on a piece of paper on the table of like all the different things someone had to do. You had to write your name like 30 some times on different pieces of paper and, you know, and your social security number like 40 times on different pieces of paper. And I think anyone looking at that would say, you know, answering the same question 15 times on different pieces of paper is not a good use of anyone's time, resource, and, and, and it creates confusion. So what, what we really did to go from about an 18-month time frame down to about three, three and a half months for an applicant that has all the materials together was we just thought structurally about how to do the process different. So before, you'd have to come in for a written examination. Then you come in for a second trip in order to uh, do your fingerprints. And then a second, a third trip to do a physical test and then a fourth test, a uh, fourth trip in, like instead we're like, well, let's do a combined prospect day where you're there for like eight hours. But during that day, you do all these different things. So when you walk out, you're not literally, you know, driving back and forth, you know, to our academy every single week. You know, you get it all done in a single day. And that move itself was was you know really impactful in terms of shortening the timeline. That combined with the advent of a lot of technology. And so, you know, now we have 
a lot more technology that existed 10 years ago and a lot more technology than 10 years before that. So our entire process is electronic. And with that, it allows us to send digital references. It allows us to engage uh, the applicant from home. They can you know, fill out information. Uh, but our system also allows us to see things that we couldn't see before. So it allows us to get a broader net. You know, 10 years ago, we might've got six, seven, eight references on a person. And that was really good. Uh, because, you know, each of those had to be a letter that was licked in an envelope and mailed, you know, and, and someone had to respond, you know, get a letter opener out, open up that letter, read the letter, type a synopsis. Now, electronically, we're able to send out, you know, most of our applicants, we're getting 50 or 60 different references on them. So, you know, the investigator's work is now reviewing that information, you know, and, and, and we're able to get a broader net and a broader amount of information on prospective candidates because of the advent of technology. We're able to do that quicker than we were before. Uh, I will say in looking at our hiring process over the last two decades, um, you know, we, we um, uh, very much uh, have improved the quality of the investigations. And we continue to do that every single day. I don't think we're looking to stay static in the space. So as we look at social media investigations, you know, the world is changing. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, Facebook wasn't the thing, right? And, and, you know, people weren't spending the time on those social media platforms we're seeing today. 10 years from now, people will be on different social media platforms. So as we're looking at, you know, our prospective candidates, uh, you know, we are now vetting social media information that's out there. We're looking at information on candidates uh, in the background space to make sure that, that you know, they're not saying something that, that would be just contrary to the, the values of the Metropolitan Police Department and, and, and the values that the community would expect us uh, to serve. And some of these are subjective decisions, right? And some of these, you know, we have to walk a fine line between freedom of speech uh, and, you know, where, where individuals have that right things that would be contrary to the department. You have, a, you, you have a freedom of speech, but you don't necessarily have the right to employment with our agency. And so that's where we'll draw that line. And I, I can tell you in the past, uh, you know, when you look at the application population, you know, out of about 100 applicants that apply, you know, one to two will make it through the process from start to finish. When you look at the candidates that come through our prospect day and successfully through our prospect day, uh, you know, the candidates that make it through all those hurdles on that first day, we're hiring about a third of those candidates. And really, you know, a lot of candidates, as we're looking through it, it's, you know, it's significant uh, uh, past derogatory information that legally we can't hire. Uh, and then it's, you know, it's information that we find out through the investigative process where they're just not a match for, for who we want to put a uniform on into the community. And so, you know, there are individuals that it's just going to take time to resolve that. You know, they had something that's recent. It's not a showstopper in the long term, but they need some time to grow, mature, whatever the case. And there's other folks that, you know, that there's items and markers in their background that, that, that ultimately, um, you know, we can't now or ever uh, bring them on board. If they've been engaged in you know, a series of robberies, right? Uh, it's probably not gonna be a good piece. If they've stolen money from people, you know, police officers have tremendous uh, you know, a, a power and influence in the situations and spaces they're in. So we have to make sure that, that, that you know, the past tells a story. Uh, and in those, in those spaces in our department, we have to listen to what's on, on, on paper and what we're hearing from people and what we're seeing, you know, because that's not going to change in the future. So if you have individuals that have committed, you know, crimes, it's, it's too high of risk to, to, you know, say, well, that won't happen again.
future. So, you know, that's not to say that, you know, an individual who had a DUI 10 years ago, right? I think we can work with that. Somebody who had theft when they were 18 years old and they're 28, they've been in the military, they got out, now they're, you know, have a stellar career. I can work with, you know, I can work with that, right? But, but it's individuals that, you know, really, if, if it's, if it's, you know, a hater bias offense that they did in the past, there's just not a place here within our agency. Um, my question is kind of like dual sided. In that, um, like that investigative, you know, the background check that you're doing, is that how in depth does that go? For example, I know obviously you do criminal background check. Is there anything else that goes into that background check? Yeah, I, I think a lot of folks uh, don't really know how detailed a police background is you know they're like oh yeah i got a background for you know a federal job or this or that i got finger uh, a police background is a different level of background i've been through the federal clearance process as well you know and 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 and, and i'm very familiar with what that looks like uh, this is far more in-depth and intense than than even that space for for folks that are familiar with the federal side because you're not only looking at you know the 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 security element but you're also looking to make sure the individual has suitability with with that so so a, as an example and, and and kind of background uh not only are we going to run all the criminal kind of history information but we're going to talk to every one of your employers in the last 10 years and co-workers that you worked with we're going to go talk to all the neighbors uh, of all the houses that you've lived at, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and just to get a perspective. And often the neighbors say, you know, hey, you lived in a large building. I didn't know the person or whatever the case is. But on occasion, the neighbors did know the person. There's relevant information. We talk to references you provide as the applicant. We talk to references that we develop on, the own, on our own uh, from the references that we talk to. Uh, we're not only looking at, at kind of open social media on the candidate. But, you know, we're then conducting a polygraph and, you know, the polygraph is really just a, a verification process. It's, it's uh, ascertaining the credibility of what the applicant said uh, and, you know, and looking and for, for a substantial portion of our applicants, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to put that around about 25% of the applicants, they go into the polygraph and they share information that they hadn't previously shared that would result in their disqualification. You know, and and you know, and, and some of those are very serious. I mean, we had individuals admit, and one one that comes to mind admitted to, uh, uh, you know, a series of armed robberies they committed and never were found out for. Uh, we've had people admit to, you know, uh, all sorts of, you know, real significant uh, kind of matters that some of which we've had to then follow up on from from a uh, you know criminal investigative side. Uh, but you know, we take that extremely seriously. Then then candidates to make it through those hurdles. They go through a medical exam, full medical exam, uh, you know, EKG, heart rate, vision, hearing, the whole nine yards, a psychological exam where they're actually talking with a psychiatrist uh, uh, to, you know, to, to assess, you know, their, their ability to perform the job. Not everyone has the mindset where, where this job uh, is something that, that, that they can do. And so, you know, the doctor will sit down, talk about past, you know, uh, instances of traumatic events and, and really, ascertain you know i think some of the mis 
the misperceptions are, you know, individuals who've sought counseling or therapy can't get a job in policing. That's not true. You know, mental health is, is very important in the policing space. And, you know, we encourage all of our employees to take advantage of our services like the Metropolitan Police Employee Assistance Program, you know, to, to make sure they're well cared for when they're on. So, you know, that's not a barrier. But what we're looking for is individuals that have, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to use the word triggers, but like triggers that that would be barriers for them to serve in the profession, you know, and so if, if they just, you know, could not imagine and, and, and you know, seeing a, a child who is hurt because of past life experiences, then, you know, that's something that's going to have to be evaluated and assessed because we wouldn't want the officer not being able to serve the community uh, if they were exposed to, you know, something that we do deal with on, 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 on a frequent basis. So all of this in mind, it's a really in-depth process. We're looking and we're assessing you know, and, and some of the questions that we ask folks, you know, are, uh, you know, about serving with, you know, traditionally underserved communities, for, for example, the LGBT community, you know, do you have any uh, concerns or reservations with working with someone who identifies as LGBTQ, uh, and, and, and if that's the case, we're not, we're not going to be hiring the person because, you know, we need officers who respect diversity, who respect, and, and that's not just racial diversity, that's not just gender diversity, that's not just religious diversity. It's, it's if you look at kind of the broad EEO categories, right? It's someone who can interact with diverse communities and meet folks where they are, wherever that is, and help them with what they need to help them. And so a lot of our questions, they're, they're you know, they're making sure, now, sure, someone could go in there and, you know, and, and try to lie, right? But those things come out between the polygraph, between you know, references that we check. And the references, we ask the same question, have they had any issues working with you know, uh, uh, communities of folks different than themselves? Would you feel comfortable with them as a police officer in your neighborhood? Like, and in these, you, know, you get folks that do express reservations and those are leads that we always follow up on and, and you know, significant credence and weight is given and, and, and the identity of the references is protected. Uh, so the applicant, you know, isn't going to come back and say, well, you said this about me. You know, we do make sure that there's that anonymity so that we can get genuine information. Sometimes we get bad information and that has to be weeded out as well. And so that's why the investigations can, can, can take longer uh, and become more complex. You know, an ex significant other might have relevant information. They also might have an ax to grind, um, you know, and so we have to ascertain and kind of weigh, you know, not only the legal cases that are there, but we have to, to make sure that we're giving the applicant fairness because you know we have we have legal exposure for disqualifying people that that we shouldn't be disqualifying as well. Okay. So I realize that's a very complex answer, but it was a complex look answer. at all these things that we're doing. You know, these files on the prospective hire, I mean, there's six, seven hundred pages of uh, of content that we're reviewing. And, and and you know, one of the shifts that we did here at the Metropolitan Police Department that I think is unique from law enforcement agencies around the country. Uh, you know, our recruiting division does the background investigation. Uh, a separate division, uh, our human resources management division, uh, is the final uh, uh, arbiter of who gets hired and not. And so even as we're pushing for numbers and quantity, that push goes to our recruiting division to fill. But our HR has that bar of what's above board and what's below board. And they're very much, the HR will never be pushed to get, you know, more numbers in the door. Uh, and that's a decision that we made very intentionally to make sure that, you know, even if we're trying to fill, you know, a class of 30 this month or 40 next month or whatever, that we're maintaining a standard that, that you know, when, you know, and if something happened, 
we look back and say, well, we made the best decision we could knowing, you know, and, and everyone in the world has baggage. No one comes in and is the perfect candidate, hasn't done anything, right? But it's assessing and ascertaining risk and making sure that we're hiring folks that, 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 that you know, that meet an acceptability in terms of that. Yeah, I, I said the, I said the uh, Peace Coalition, our, one of our focuses is on that baggage. I know you mentioned, um, and it sounds like it's very intense, and you've kind of uh, answered this. Uh, you mentioned the people still do have freedom of speech, but there's a fine line between freedom of speech versus not being like hate speech. Like, based on investigations between 2016 and 2020, agents and analysts with FBI's and Virginia's and Antonio concluded the white supremacists and other right wing extremists would very likely seek affiliation with military, military and law enforcement entities in furtherance of their ideology. Um, and so to just know things like that, and you and you know, and you're aware that there are certain individuals that are trying to do that. You know, it, these are the actions that you're actively doing to limit members of extremist groups and organizations in metropolitan um, So that that's really good to hear. Um, yeah, and if I can just chime in on that, you know, okay. we have an organization culture assessment that's going on right now. We've asked the Police Executive Research Forum, which is a national organization. They've hired. Uh, experts in the field of, of HR and diversity and kind of all these areas to help us top down, bottom up, left, right, you know, review the organization. One of the main taskings and, and questions on the table is how do we do vetting for extremism better? And, and, and this is a challenge, you know, as they've started to look nationally, the answer is there's not a lot of people doing this, right? And so we're, we're trying to you know, really be on the forefront of, you know, what is the best way to still protect applicants' First Amendment rights, but ensure that we're not stepping in a space where we're hiring folks that are intentionally coming into law enforcement. Uh, you know, I think coming out of January 6th, this, this underscored, uh, you know, for a lot of law enforcement departments, the potential risk and potential exposure uh, in that space and place. But, you know, I think, um, you know, for us, you know, we are constantly evaluating, are there better questions we can ask? Are there things that we can look for? How do we make sure we're, we're you know, we're not infringing on political beliefs, but we're also making sure that we balance, you know, uh, uh, beliefs. You know, one of the things we, we entered is said, well, you know, if members have affiliation with any, uh, you know, domestic terrorist group, uh, then, then, then we'll eliminate them from our process. Okay, that sounds great in concept, so whose list do you use? So you turn to the FBI. Well, they don't have a list. Right. Well, then you're turning to private organizations, the ADL, Southern Poverty Laws. Like any of these, these, these organizations have a list, but those lists are different. And each of those lists, there's going to be people on the list that argue, well, I shouldn't be on the list. So this is where we're in the space trying to really get the best practice because, you know, obviously if there was a national definition of what met, met any of the you know, domestic extremism, I think we would be in a very different space, but there isn't that, right? And so, you know, we then right now have to look at, you know, the conduct of individuals and, you know, not necessarily the organization affiliation, though certainly there would be some that, that I think are ubiquitous on any list, right? But these are the spaces that we're really, you know, looking to explore better policy and best practice uh, you know, and I'm, I'm optimistic for the research that's coming out of our current tasking, uh, which we should have in early spring of this year, just to see the best practice recommendations that they have for us and ways that we can continue to strengthen what we're doing to really make sure that, you know, every officer coming in 
uh, as an officer that's going to be able to serve every diverse community here in Washington, D.C. with, you know, with respect and dignity that, that every community deserves. And, and what about, you know, individuals that are already present within the police? Is there ever any type of, or whether it's even maybe the academy or, um, you know, periodically, is there ever, uh, do police officers ever undergo some type of implicit bias training? Absolutely. And, and our agency has been in this space for a long time. You know, some agencies were rushing in the last year to, you know, get their implicit bias training or to get, you know, training on. Uh, this has been a standing practice of the Metropolitan Police Department, you know, for a long time. You know, for those, for those that, that might not know MPD very well, we're a really, really, really diverse organization, 65% minority officers within the agency. Uh, we're an agency that speaks over 35 languages, um, you know, and, 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 you know, represents many, many religions throughout, you know, the community. So, you know, this is a very diverse organization that's been progressive for a very long time. Could we do better? No doubt. Could we continue to improve in the space? Absolutely. I think, you know, Chief Conti and, and the vision he set is to do just that. He's been listening, even with Howard University, you know, Dr. Muhammad and, and kind of the listening sessions we've been doing there. We've been hearing voices throughout the community, you know, for years and ways to improve. And, and we take that feedback and really do try to implement what we can. Obviously, you know, not everything turns on the dime. But when, when you know, when you're looking at current personnel, uh, there are challenges in that space as well. Uh, again, you know, if you say, well, you have organization affiliation with any of these groups, we're going to terminate you. But whose list do you use, right? And so we're back to that same dynamic. But what I can say is we look at the behaviors. So, you know, disrespecting members of the community, something that would be, you know, uh, hate speech towards, you know, a group. Those are items that would find an individual at an adverse action hearing panel looking at their own termination. You know, and, and, and it's something that our, our managers would take very seriously, again, looking and, and kind of ascertaining what, what people say and, and, and kind of that piece. In terms of the training we provide, uh, we've done implicit bias training, we've done, you know, all these things, and it's not just a one-time thing. These are constant evolutions that we're looking at. So 2016, uh, 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 I think it was 2016, we started our in-depth uh, program with the Nash University of District of Columbia and the National Museum of African American History and Culture, focusing on 400 years of law enforcement history. We brought every officer through a 10-hour uh, program, new officers through a 16-hour program, but all existing officers through a 10-hour program, talking about the role of policing in history. And, and I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. It hasn't been good uh, in, in a lot of those years. Often law enforcement found themselves on the wrong side uh, in my opinion, of history. And, and, you know, really we walk through people in, in that training to talk about, you know, the impacts uh, that history has uh, on our current day decisions and moving forward. This is an evolution. So we did, pro that was phase one, we've done phase two, we're in phase three, and that's the impact that, that you know, government institutions, more broadly the police, have on, you know, uh, on underserved communities, not just uh, uh, you know, looking through many different lenses. And so you know, our professors in that space, external professors have really kind of led and, 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 and broadened MPD's, you know, uh, thought process and, and uh, around this. We do, you know, walks in the community looking from a historical perspective, what happened in, in neighborhoods uh, here. You know, so all of this is an ongoing part of MPD's 
uh, DNA. It's part of the culture, part of what we build into training uh, because it's really important. It's not just the tactics, you know, not just, you know, uh, how to handcuff somebody or how to, you know, uh, uh, use the tools that are on the belt, but it's also the, the, the smarts that are in, 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 the, in our officers' heads of how they engage with the communities that we serve. And, you know, uh, these type of trainings, uh, we've really tried to amplify uh, over the past years, but it's not new to us. I mean, we've been talking about uh, active bystandership. And that was a huge thing coming out of George Floyd. Everyone's like, well, we need training on active bystandership. And, 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 and we're doing uh, active bystandership for law enforcement now, the ABLE program, which is a national recognized model. But we've been talking about that to our officers for 20 years with our partnership with the United States Holocaust Museum Memorial and the Anti-Defamation League. And the program really talking about police officers' impact on society and how individual decisions you know, of officers to either, uh, uh, you know, support or not support government actions can, you know, can, can be a slippery slope. And so that program, you know, really, as we, we dove into it was that, you know, how do you intervene? How do you, you know, look at your peer officer and say, hey, I got this, right? And so, you know, these spaces are not new. They're not foreign to us. They're, they're really, you know, areas that we're really continuing to invest heavily in because we want the best trained police department. We want the officers where our community, uh, you know, very much uh, uh, respects and looks to, uh, to be the, you know, to be resolvers of uh, conflict in, in the community. Okay. Um, thank you. I, I, we're at a, almost out of our time, but uh, thank you for you know, explaining that. And that's, it makes me a little more at ease in the, in the uh, knowing that there's so much going on behind the scenes. Um, but according to Gallup, a well-renowned American analytics advisory uh, company has found that for the first time in its 27 years of measuring attitudes toward the police, Gallup found that a majority of American adults do not trust law enforcement. 48% of adults um, um, trust law enforcement. This is a record low. And so, and then amongst uh, racial groups, it's even lower, um, significantly lower actually. Um, so how do you feel about this and what are you all, you know, actively trying to do to sway these opinions in a positive way? Yeah, I, I think, think you're I, not the only people in America, but just. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I think you're, you're, you're bringing up an incredibly, you know, important piece. And I think the last two years and, and the media surrounding the last two years, you know, one of the things that, 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 that we have to realize is in this country, we have 18,000, about 18,000 different law enforcement agencies. And the experience in one is not the same as the other. The policies in one are not the same in the other. The expectations of officers, the training of officers, the selection of officers, those are not the same in any jurisdiction. And so, you know, with social media, with news media, often it's, it's kind of blanket approach, right? Please do this, please do that, right? And, and the reality, it's, it's there's 18,000 different iterations of, you know, what that policy is. This past year, uh, well, 2020, these years have run together, but you know, the, the eight can't wait campaign, we got inundated with, with thousands of emails of folks advocating on the eight can't wait. And our response was like, yeah, we've been doing this stuff for a very long time already. Like this is, thank you for advocating. That's not, we don't allow that already. You know, I appreciate you right, reaching in, but you know, I, what this all underscores to me is the importance of engagement. Uh, things like this, where we can roll up our sleeves and have honest conversations about what we're doing, what we're not doing, 
and hear from the community and uh, all communities, not just communities that will show up to testify at council, but all communities about what they want to have in their police department, what they want to be seeing in their officers and make sure that in our city, that it reflects the will of the broader community. And you know, I, I think MPD has been a leader in the space. When you look at other uh, uh, jurisdictions, you know, you'll, you'll hear arguments like, well, the police shouldn't be enforcing marijuana. And I'd look at that and say, the legislature needs to change the law about marijuana. The police are only going to, to, to enforce what the laws are on the book. So if you don't like the law, you can't blame the police department for enforcing the laws that are passed. You know, so every system has an input and an output and, 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 and policing is extremely complex, but often it's the most visible and public face that the community sees and feels. And so when you look in other jurisdictions, police departments are, are writing tickets to raise money to pay for things, right? And, and I'm kind of, you know, at very high level summarizing, you know, some of the pieces that would come out of like a Ferguson or other, other cities where, you know, the law enforcement is really collecting money, you know, uh, through a ticketing process that further disenfranchises the community. Like, that's not the practice here at MPD. That's not what we've done. But when you say, yeah, these individual stories around the country, they paint a narrative. And, you know, our officers are very frustrated because they're like, yeah, but that's not what I do. That's not what we do here. That's not what we've ever done here. But yet, you know, again, the power of social media, the power of that, I do think that law enforcement departments across the story, the country do not do a, uh, a strong enough job uh, uh, opening their doors to those to come in to engage. You know, for years I've been working with our community engagement academy, and I'd invite you know any one of the listeners to today's podcast to join. It's you know it's a commitment. You come in for about twenty hours with us, but we roll up our sleeves. We have some honest conversations. We you know walk you through some of the training stuff. We introduce you to you know various things, and we hear from our community you know through and through their perspective on things and every one of the graduates we've had hundreds and hundreds of graduates through the program when they walk out of there everyone has told me like that was eye-opening i had no idea of you know these various pieces right and so you know i think honestly a lot of it is you know you watch the media i watch the media i watch things like you know the george floyd uh murder and 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 you know it's heartbreaking it's crushing and, 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 you know, but it also fuels me to make sure that our department is positioned in a way where that's not the story of our agency, uh, you know, and, and that we are, you know, we are continuing to push forward every single day to be better than we were the day before, to be more responsive to the community. And so, you know, I realize that's a long answer to your question, but I think at the end of the day, public perception, it's a media piece. Um, you know, when you talk to local DC residents, and I do every single day, um, in many of our communities, they're asking for more police. I haven't been to a community meeting yet where people say, uh, I don't want any police in my community. That's just not the, the meetings that we're going to. People are saying, I want to be safe coming out of my, now, sure, there's perspective of I want police to do this or police to do that or a little bit different. But, you know, we are very much, uh, you know, in the space that I think, you know, at least in our community, uh, the majority, not all, but the majority of folks do still have a trust in the Metropolitan Police Department here in DC. And I think that there's room for us to improve that every single day. But that gets that same passion to have make sure that all of our officers have and feel that, right? Because I can say it's sitting from the seat that I sit, but if the officer that responds to your house or to my house, and I'm a DC resident as well, right? So, uh, you know, if I don't get that service, 
then that's a different perception as well. And, and I'm aware that, you know, individuals perceptions sometimes. So we just had a youth summit uh, this, this uh, past week. And it was so interesting to hear the voice of, of, you know, about 130 high schoolers, right? And they're just, but what they were sharing is like their perception isn't any interaction they had with our officers. It's with the security at the schools and it's what they're seeing on social media, which just tells me that we have more to do in that space, right? You know, if, if you're if you're I, on my Facebook feed, I, uh, you know, it, it just has a ton of different, you know, law enforcement stuff. And if I were just guided by what I see there, oh, that would be a very tough perception of law enforcement compared to what I know from my career in, in this space. So, you know, I just invite anyone, you know, that's listening to this program, you know, and, and, and I'm sure we can share my contact information, but I'm always willing to engage. I'm willing to have my team engage, you know, in honest conversations. And we might not agree at the end of but I think that conversation, uh, you know, it, it's helpful and it's beneficial. And then at the end of the day, it allows, you know, both the community members and the department to, to get to be that place where, you know, where we're, we're, we're meeting what people are expecting. So long answer to your question, but I hope, I hope that resonates. Uh, it, it definitely did. And I, I appreciate that. Um, it just, it just goes to show that every agency is not the same. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Mr. Heyman. Um, it was great having you, you were technically our second guest on the show. So this was, this was big and, um, uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, if you want to say anything to the people in my statement or anything like that, the listeners, you can go no, ahead. It's my pleasure to be here with everybody. And, 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 you know, I'd love to come back for session two on a different topic someday. So thank you so much. Uh, make sure you follow us at the Peace Coalition HU on Instagram. Again, the Peace Coalition HU is going to be found on Spotify. Thank you, Mr. Hayden. Take care.